Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring professional journeys. I'm your host, David Gidali. This is episode 20. Our guest today is Todd Sheridan Perry, or Teaspoon. He's a visual effects supervisor, currently working at Method Studios. He has over 20 years of experience in the visual effects industry, working on big blockbusters like Black Panther, Avengers, Age of Ultron, Doctor Strange... Most recently, he worked on a series called For All Mankind, which is going to debut on Apple's new streaming service. He's a screenwriter, and he's in the process of directing a short film, which started as a technical research and development piece at Method. I think he's a great guest for the Post Post podcast uh, because he's a special visual effects supervisor in that he's not anchored to one studio. He takes on one big job at a time and then takes long breaks in between jobs to work on smaller projects that he finds interesting for various reasons. A lot of the times uh, he works all by himself on these projects, which is very different from working as a visual effects supervisor in a big studio where you supervise, you know, 20, 40, 50 artists. And I find this uh, transition between being in such a, you know, high hierarchical place to working on your own computer at home, very interesting and intriguing. Not something that you usually see from visual effects supervisors. He also uses these uh, self-prescribed breaks to advance his career in other ways, to write screenplays, to test out new technologies that he hasn't had a chance to work on in the context of a bigger studio, and to work on projects that he personally finds interesting, strange, or funny, like an adult swim show that he recently worked on. In this episode, he tells us about his winding professional career from owning his own visual effects house to then moving and working at Weta Digital, uh, one of the biggest visual effects houses in the world. And then the journey that took him back to Seattle and to uh, a pretty ideal work situation where he can enjoy both uh, the advantages of being part of a big studio and also the freedom of being able to take breaks and work on his own projects and how he thinks he's managed to do that over the years. And uh, ultimately also what his next goals are in his professional life as a visual effects supervisor and also uh, as a director. Finally, I just wanted to point out that because it was a remote recording over the internet, there are a few peaks and uh, background noises and clicks that were picked up in this uh, episode. I apologize for them, but I think the conversation is uh, worth listening to and is going to be rewarding. So without further ado, I give you episode 20 of the Post Post Podcast. that uh, a lot of times you uh, sign TSP um, is that I mean that's Todd Sheridan Perry but uh, do, you, uh, do you also uh, go by teaspoon or is it just kind of a or did yes. I just make it up <laughs> nope <laughs> um, that I started getting called that a few uh, few years ago by a production manager on a show and then uh, that ultimately evolved into what my company name is. Um, in Seattle, so I, I own Teaspoon Media Inc. When and my the VFX side of it is uh, Teaspoon VFX. Cool. So I, w- I wasn't making it up or imagining things. It's actually how you uh, call no, it. no. You kind of keyed <laughs> into it. Cool. So uh, um, how do you like? Let's have you introduce yourself. I, I mean, I know a lot about you, and uh, you know, I've heard you talk on other podcasts before as well, uh, but. Um, 
Yeah, I want to give you kind of the the opportunity to uh, to quickly kind of briefly introduce yourself. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, well, I'm a visual effects supervisor, or at least that's what people pay me to do. And then uh, I've been in this industry professionally for a little over 20 years, but um, I've been doing animation and um, making little films and uh, doing special effects and so forth since I was probably eight or nine years old when I wow. figured out that uh, how you how you can do stop motion animation. And uh, so it's always been kind of a passion and it led into my profession, which doesn't hurt at all. Cool. So you started in stop motion when you were eight or nine. How did you get to do that? Uh, my cousins that I spent summers with down in, in California, um, they were really super smart. Their, their parents worked at like, uh, Lockheed and JPL and, and so forth. And so they just were around science all the time and they're just building things all the time. Um, and they, uh, they just basically, they had a eight millimeter camera and, said hey this is you can do things with with this if you take a a frame and then move it a little bit and take a frame and move it a little bit and then we'll get go down to kmart and and have it developed and then you can watch this thing move and that's so interesting i, I mean all I, of this I, summer like animating sorry. matchbox cars and stuff <laughs> so you spent your summers with them is that how you kind of got yeah uh, that's cool i i'm my start in kind of, or my attraction to film also went through my cousins because my uncle, my, my parents, or I should say my mom is not a big cinephile at all. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, that was, it was constant struggle to like get her to buy like a, even just a, a videotape, a video cassette player when I was a kid, uh -huh. something that I was like kind of struggling to, but it was my, my uncle and cousins who actually kind of introduced me to film because my uncle used to take us to watch, you know, films in, in, uh, in the, in the theater like almost uh, every week or maybe even twice a week. And that was sure. always also during the summer vacation. So it's kind of interesting. It's uh, a very similar um, kind of family connection to, to that passion. So did your parents uh, ever have to do, uh, have anything to do with films or with uh, arts um, or? I, they never kept me away from it. My mom was into, into theater um so stage theater and musical theater and my grandparents were into music and opera and, and things like that. And so, um, but I guess it was just the culture of the, of the time and just movies were, were a thing. And I was just entranced with them. I, I just couldn't get enough of watching films or watching cartoons or, uh, and it wasn't just that, Oh, I like cartoons because I like, uh, I, I like cartoons. I started like really, really diving deep in a super nerdy way, so I could tell <laughs> styles of of um, cartoon directors. So for Warner Brothers cartoons, I could tell a Chuck Jones cartoon from a Fritz Freeling cartoon from a Robert McKimson cartoon based wow. on the style of the animation. And um, what age was that? I I don't know, ten, eleven, or so. <laughs> it just, wow. Yeah, that's that is quite nerdy, but uh, I, I totally relate. Nerdy. I think I think a lot of us uh, VFX people can relate completely to that uh, that type of uh, infatuation with uh, 
with the craft that are yeah 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 um, and so um, but it was really Star Wars was that turning point again my my cousins had turned me on to that and I distinctly remember seeing the trailer for Star Wars. And if you look online, you can find this version of the trailer. It was the pre-John Williams music trailer. And um, I remember thinking, this looks super cheesy. And I'm eight, <laughs> and I'm thinking that this looks super cheesy. Wow. And uh, uh, then when I met up with the cousins uh, kind of leading into that summer, they were saying, you've got to see this movie. This is amazing. And so uh, I went to see it, and and my my future was. <laughs> what a great, set. what a great like kind of uh, experience to see how. I mean, what a great example of how much music kind of affects the the outcome, or, or you know, the the importance of soundtrack in a film. Yeah, yeah. To to realize that it's a completely different thing once you once you have the right music. Yep. Um, so to people who are not, cause it's called a post post podcast and a majority of my guests are, uh, in fact, post-production professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do know that I have a few listeners who are not like, it, it's not their job. They're kind of listening to it, uh, mostly out of obligation to me. So out of, uh, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to honor their uh, dedication, um, how do you kind of explain what uh, what do you do as a VFX supervisor uh, when you talk to people who are not in the field? Okay, um, let's see. That's a good question because we do a lot of different things, but I think the main the main thing that that we could be defined as doing is that we translate the vision of the director into taskable items that can be actually executed by artists. So, um, the director, I think, yeah, yeah, they just, they can be, a lot of directors can be very elusive about what it is they're trying to achieve. Some directors are, are extremely precise about how they explain what they need to be achieved, but, we need to take that and we need to go, okay, they, they're, they're thinking that, um, that the colors feel too angry and we have to take that note and we have to translate it into something that the artist can then do. Yeah. And then, um, and then guide that. And we're in that interpretation. It's then we go back up to the director and say, is this kind of what you were what you were thinking of. Um, so uh, that's a great kind of way I think to put it. And I'm sure people who are not in the field would, would kind of have a lot of follow-up questions about like, well, how do you know that your interpretation is similar to the director's interpretation? Where do you get that, you know, arrogant assumption from or, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would say, I think the, the, the thing that I, I think could, could lead us to get some of those answers, uh, can we can probably trace it back to what we were t just talking about? So, you started, you you were uh, exposed to to TV, film, and animation at a at a young age, and you became very interested in and obsessed with it. Um, and can you kind of uh, 
maybe walk us through the um uh what do you call it like the um the trajectory the trajectory that led you to be a VFX supervisor? Because uh, I'm sure a lot of kids back then were probably didn't know what a VFX supervisor is. And, I, you know, right. I think there weren't no VFX supervisors or maybe, you know, on, on Star Wars, yes, I guess, but it was yeah, pretty yeah. new as, as a concept. Um, so how, how did you find out about how do you kind of uh, trace back your, uh, uh, your journey into well, eventually being, being one? Being a, a VFX supervisor, um, yeah. well, when I when I was inspired by Star Wars, it it wasn't a a specific uh, a specific thing. Um, it, it was it was more like I am going to be part of making things like this. So um, I I had already was into into drawing and 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 that type of thing or making little animations in the in the sides of your books and and things like that but i also tried my hand at model making and sculpting and as i got older into my teens i started playing with um with makeup and fortunately my parents encouraged this always so it's and my mom both my parents worked at at uh, colleges and so my mom would come and she goes, there's a summer course on, on uh, like triage makeup for, for training um, EMTs and things like that. And so you have to dress up these people like they have certain kinds of, of wounds. Wow. That's an interesting course. It is an interesting course. course. And so she would dial in on those and say, oh, well, Todd might be interested in that, even though it's so weird. We got to have a, a gaping head wound. How does, how does that look like? And, and would my 14 year old kid, is this, you know, healthy for him <laughs> to have this obsession. There's, there's um, no hidden agenda of like trying to make uh, you turn you into a doctor or like, you know, having no, a real profession. That's no, good. no. But, so. um, there was storyboard. Uh, she, she would turn me on to storyboard courses. And then there was a film appreciation class that, that, uh, that she turned me on to, um, which was more about how, not not how do you appreciate these films? It's it was more about how to watch films, mm. um, and and how to watch for them in a very specific way. So instead of just passively passively ingesting the 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 film, yeah, um, it, there was more of a of an active reflection of of what the director and all of the crew, the DP and the editors and so forth, what they were doing and and what they were telling the audience by certain decisions that they were making. So um, wow, that that kind of started me on my way of watching movies in a in a different way. I feel like I still need to take that course because I often get out of <laughs> finish a film and like kind of you know and I, and I'm I feel like I'm a blank slate. I'm like, what did just happen? It's like purely right. purely emotional impact, and that's it. There's no like the brain doesn't work for me sometimes. And I, and I think that's yeah. good. I think that the first the first screening of a of a film should be that way. It should be just your emotional response to it because that's what the intention of the of the film usually is, or at least good films. Um. 
And yeah, but then, I think it's really, I mean, it, it's part, it's a fundamental element in like becoming a filmmaker in, in having the, that vocabulary and like understanding the different, what is, what is the difference between a DP's work and a, you know, and an editor's work or right, production designer right, right. or, you know, sound designer. Um, and it also bleeds into the visual effects stuff because once you start saying, seeing how, what kind of emotional impact is, is uh, being achieved by using a 35 millimeter lens versus a 50 millimeter lens versus an 85 millimeter lens and you start seeing what those those look like yeah um then you start keying into those things when you're visual effects supervising because we're you know we're always taking disparate things and putting them together yeah and you have to make sure that all of those optics work so it's like well you're background needs to be more out of focus because this was shot on an 85 millimeter lens so yeah the depth of field is going to be really shallow and and so i i think knowing that from a filmmaker standpoint and knowing the intention of of what the filmmakers are trying to get at um even guides you in your in your choices again back to trying to in, interpret the notes from the director right you kind of have to go, okay, this is shot this way. So optically and realistically, it would look like this, but it looks like the focus puller missed his mark. So we need to, <laughs> right. <laughs> we need to pull focus differently because the story of this shot is not what he's focused on. It's what he's looking at. And so we need to fake that and, and make this shot work in a different way. Right, and it actually it brings me to to the realization that we didn't actually you introduced yourself, but you didn't introduce uh, I think some of the projects that you worked on. I mean, I think recently you worked on Black Panther, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. um, Avengers. Um, is it Endgame? Did you work on Endgame or? I did not work on on Endgame. Um, I was busy on Black Panther. Oh right, uh, <laughs> and so. Um, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, Avengers, Age of Ultron. Oh yeah, right, Age of Ultron. Um, and then currently, I'm on a a series called um, called For All Mankind, which is a space race series. Huh. And the the plug for the for the series is what if the space race never ended? And but the the more clear plug is what would have happened if the Russians landed first. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, uh, I need to, <laughs> it's about time to like, uh, scrape one of my ideas, uh, put them like <laughs> in the shelf, you know? So, uh, so that one is already taken. <laughs> no, uh, that one's um, already taken. But- but there's always right. your version of that, so don't. don't. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not exactly what I had in mind, but yeah, I mean, it, it sounds fantastic. Which, uh, uh, what TV series is, is like? Uh, who's the uh, production company or the distributor for that? Production company is Sony, but the distribution is the Apple streaming channel, which has not yet actually dropped. Oh so, yeah, right. um, it, it will. It will be part of the content. Of uh, of that service of Apple Apple TV Plus, I think. Wow, exciting! Okay, yeah. Is this? Uh, I'm guessing it probably has to be one of the first uh, productions or their first kind of titles that they're yeah. going to be dropping. Yeah, awesome. Um, 
I don't know what else is out there. We're kind of myopic about our, our project. It's like, this is the project we <laughs> we are focused on. We have to finish this. Right. And I'm assuming it's been announced. Otherwise, you wouldn't have told me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's been there's been a few uh, trailers for it um, oh, okay. so far. So you can find it on YouTube. There is a... Um, uh, there was a trailer for the series itself, and then there was a trailer that was a little bit of a tie-in and a retrospective into the Apollo 11 moon landing, just because mm, of right of yeah. the anniversary and and so forth. So um, exactly, and I'll I'll put a link to the trailer on the on the episode's website. So if anybody who's listening is also you know happens to be landing on the website, they'll be able to see it there. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a cool concept. Um, the entire the entire series has some some really interesting uh, like alternate reality, uh, alternate timeline things. Like, if the trajectory split off, and right. what, what was our focus? How would that have changed the entire space program? Yeah, no, I'm I'm assuming there's a lunar uh, colony um, at the very least, right? Or uh, we'll see. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm just uh, you know, I'm just talking about my idea, not not the one that right. you guys are executing. My version has a lunar colony in it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, that sounds exciting. I mean, it, I, I love projects that are grounded in science i mean i obviously i'm a big fan of uh, the avengers universe as well i'm sure it was a pleasure you know and and you know working on it. i can't imagine if there is a title that you know kind of is is the i guess uh that represents the you know the the most advanced uh vfx kind of technology that's been used in films is, is it's the avengers uh, cinematic universe sure. for sure yeah. um and uh, I mean, I, I read a little bit about uh, kind of the uh, your role in uh, Black Panther because there's an article about it. Um, and uh, one of my main takeaways that it, it must have been a, a crazy timeline and a, and a huge challenge in terms of like you know what was asked and, and the amount of time that that you had to achieve it. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll get to talk about that as well, and I'm sure you have a lot to kind of share about the uh, the way things are since you're so involved and in, you know clearly um, have your finger on the pulse when it comes to VFX. You know, uh, being used in uh, you know in, in the most recent titles and the most recent projects. Um, before we get before we get to that, I'm kind of curious uh, to hear a little bit more about how you ended up how you did end up as a VFX supervisor and, you know, you're kind of, when you, at what point did you kind of know, know what a VFX supervisor is or isolated and, and realize that this is, you know, uh, a job that you could um, turn into kind of your, your source of living, I guess, if at all, or if it just kind of, if it ever uh-huh. happened that way. Yeah, um, I, I don't think it was a, a, ever a, a question. Um, I, I mean, I graduated in uh, high school in 88. And so there was an industry that w- that was kind of there. <laughs> it's like an industry uh, question mark? Yeah, like. it, it was an industry, but it, but it was a little bit um, harder to, to access. 
because okay. right. they're working with with optical printers and Oxbury animation stands and thirty five millimeter cameras or VistaVision cameras or things that are just you, you can't you don't have access to as a as a teenager. And yeah, so, how do like, you yeah. how do you do that? How do you get access to that? And at that time, um, we had. Uh, Tron had come out in 82-ish, and so we started seeing computer stuff, and then we had right. Star Trek II did a, did a crazy thing. And then right in, in that area, we started getting things like Lightwave and, um, uh, and Caligari 3D, and we had Amiga, uh, Commodore Amigas, and we, and we started getting these computers that started giving us access to do these things that the silicon graphics machines, which were, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars, we had kind of a, a glimpse into into that, and we could start playing with those ideas. Yeah, and um, so I, I was kind of right at that juncture where where computers were starting to become uh, a tool in visual effects and and in art and my dad was kind of big into into computers and he brought home a macintosh in the mid 80s and i was like oh, whoa <laughs> we can we can draw on this on this thing and make like make pictures and then we started getting animation and then we started getting 3d animation and then we could light stuff and then we could and um, so by the time I, I graduated from college, uh, I was keyed into to what I could be doing with, with computers. So when I went to the university, I got a job on campus at the uh, TV station. And so um, I was logging tapes and shooting events and... and um, then by the time I was ending my college career, I was uh, I was working with the graphic stuff that they had there, and I was also they were giving me projects to edit that that students had in other classes. So if students had to edit a, a video project together, then it would just kind of go to me to to edit the the pieces for them. I'm um, sure a lot of it kind of came naturally just because you were drawn to those things and kind of you put yourself at the junction where, you know, people who needed help kind of, right. you were there, you would you always raise, raise your hand to kind of jump in and, and sort of solve challenges and things like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and they were saying, can, Hey, this looks really interesting. Uh, can you show me how this works? <laughs> so not nonlinear editing was uh, just starting to, come to its own oh wow and so i was really editing on you know half inch and three quarter inch tapes while i was doing that and i was looking at the nonlinear editing software going oh i think this sounds way easier <laughs> than, <laughs> what I'm, than what i'm doing yeah. and so before i graduated uh a local company um that did multimedia stuff for Warehouser, which was a Pacific Northwest company that makes paper products and wooden products and things like that. And so um, they were looking for someone who was artistic, who was technically savvy, who knew video equipment and um, and knew computers. And so the 
people in the TV station said, well, you should probably talk to Todd. Yeah. And so then I was hired, uh, I was hired before I graduated. And so I ended up being an art director at that company for, for a couple years. And then there was this, this, uh, project that came in for a, mill that they were in the middle of building so it didn't exist yet and so we were looking at the plans and and so forth and i we're looking at these orthographic autocad um drawings and or schematics and um i said so you guys this is coming out of autocad right so you have a dxf file of this and um, they said, well, yeah, we, we do. And I said, well, if you guys can give us that, then we can like go inside of this equipment. We can build the things that are inside. And we can open them up and show how they're working. And, and uh, we can walk around the mill. They must have <laughs> like not, not even known what, you're, what you mean by, by that when you said that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, certainly the executive producer is like, what, can we do this? And I said, yes, but you need to buy this software. And so I basically coerced him into getting um, 3D Studio R2 uh, on, on DOS. And basic, because I wanted to learn 3D software. Yeah. So here's a project where we can learn how to do this. If you buy this software that's $4,000 and not something that I just have in my pocket to invest in, <laughs> then I will learn how to use this software and then we can deliver something to the client that is better than what they were expecting it to be. This and is how you pitch it? Or, I mean, I would have just said, I know how to do it. I just have to, I just I need the software to show you or something. <laughs> it was, it was, I know, I know it can be done and I will figure it out. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> And, uh, so, uh, that was, um, my toe dipping into the water of actually like using this 3d stuff. And then we hired a guy, um, from Purdue who had some experience with this software. And so he came in and was our 3d animator and I was learning from him. And then um, from there, after that project wrapped up, um, I had been sending resumes down to Los Angeles as a as an animator, or um, and I wasn't getting any bites. So after that project, I just had enough money saved up that I said, "I'm just going to jump in my car and go down to Los Angeles. And if I don't have a job in three months, then I'm just going to." Uh, try and get a, a a master's in screenwriting or production or something like that. Oh, that's a pretty to, pretty bold move to, to, to just get you know get into your car and drive down and like you know I mean I I tried that once and it was I know it was just very hard and even just emotionally like the first few days are when you're when you're there and you're like you know and you nothing know, is there yeah exactly <laughs> like what what am I doing um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, my girlfriend at the time helped me gather, gather, uh, resumes and so forth and get them all out there. And, um, I had already, this was the time of, of AOL. So I was already in a, in a Hollywood chat room talking to okay. Hollywood people. Right. And so, um, I got invited to a, a AOL Hollywood party at 
what ended up being um, the house of of Russell Carpenter, who's uh, who is the DP of Titanic. Oh wow! And he and he happened to be um, like just starting the Universal Terminator ride <laughs> thing. Oh wow! Oh my god! And um, so, in talking with the the people at that party, is talking with a gentleman. Um, and uh, he said, "Well, what do you what do you do?" And I told him that I was, you know, an animator and a computer artist, and I did this and this and this and this. And I said, "What do you do?" And he goes, "Well, I hire people that are like <laughs> <laughs> that do all those things." Wow, and that's a good so, party to go to. It's, uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. So Too bad that AOL was, is gone. Well, you can still you now we have tons of stuff that you can <laughs> no, connect kidding. with people. I know. Uh, so I got that that job. Um, that was a video game company, and then I did it was doing freelance stuff for um, uh, for a visual effects guy who had transitioned into After Effects. So he was doing his own stuff, but he had had experience at ILM and and. Uh, working with with opticals and and animation in in that sense so as freelancing with him and then I was also uh, freelancing with a company that did uh, did logos so like the universal logo coming around the world that all those types of things yeah was there uh, were you kind of consciously preferring to do freelance versus uh, working um, kind of as a full, at full a, on at a company hire? yeah 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 for sure why um, I, I because uh, I'm not tethered to to a company and and whatever projects they may want to offer. So I think I think that um, that was the last time that I was like staff staff. I I, w- I was at ImageWorks briefly, which I was considered you know an employee a staff employee, yeah. um, but after ImageWorks, which is when I started my own company and that just kind of immediately put me into visual effects supervisor, art director, animation director, or whatever kind of director needed to be <laughs> existing How, because I was the one there. Um, at, the, at your company? You mean? Like when, as, at my company, yeah. I see. Interesting. And what kind of, so I was like thinking, because uh, I'm in a similar place where I, I've, I haven't been fully full, full-time employee and for like more than, I guess, 12 years now. Um, yeah. and, uh, but I was early on and I, I always remember that time and like, you know, being kind of in the facility on site every day as a very, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a very fruitful time where you, where you learn a lot because you're surrounded by, uh, people who are doing similar things. I mean, the, the amount of kind of new tricks that I've learned while I was on site, not that, I mean, not that on site equals or, you know, that being freelance is the opposite of being on site necessarily, but I've always felt like, you know, this is one of the, one of the, 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 the cons to being a self kind of, self-employed or working remotely is that you don't have that interaction with other artists that, you know, that can. Well, I guess there's, uh, I do, I do do freelance in that capacity, but, but I'm always, I'm always freelance when I'm hired onto, onto larger shows. So I'm, or I guess freelance is the wrong word. I'm a, I'm a 
contractor. Right. So I'm contracted for this project. And um, I, I think the benefit that, that I gain from that is that if I do move to different facilities, like if I'm not at a specific facility for years, yeah, that you get a chance to see how different workflows right. and different and different pipelines function and, and nobody nobody's pipeline is the perfect pipeline you, yeah you so you just kind of take interesting things from different pipelines and then you you bring it with you to to other facilities and you go you know what i was at on this show and we did it this way it seems like it might be a, a better way to yeah um, to approach this problem I guess the question is kind of how uh, how early in your career were you able to to do that effectively without having you know without it being kind of a, an obstacle to being hired in the first place I mean I'm assuming you know once you've had that experience and you worked in a, in a few facilities then you you can feel confident that you know you'll bring it to the table but when you're just starting um, I guess besides being a full-time at Imageworks, as you said, uh, were there other yeah. full-time, uh, jobs that you had or other experiences where you felt like you, you've, you know, you've worked long enough on site in a big facility and you kind of know enough now to, to branch out and to start your own company or was it kind yeah. of simultaneous or, um, it was, it was simultaneous. The, the department at, at Imageworks that I was working at, um, was closing down. <clears throat> and I was trying. I was trying to get over to the to the feature film side of of things because um, I was a three D Studio Max guy and a, not a soft homage or Maya hadn't quite come out at that point right. yet. So I guess a soft homage or um, alias wavefront guy. I was not one of those, and so there would right. be some training. And uh, because of the freelance stuff that I had been doing, um, it was kind of a decision of, well, we can just do this on our own. We just need to get a loan for some machines and find a few artists, and then we can do small stuff and we build up. Right. And so owning a company, um, even if we have a few employees, is, is a very similar pattern to a, a freelance lifestyle where you get a project new and you ramp up and then you do the project and then as it's coming down you're looking for the next project um right and it's constantly that 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 uh feast and famine type of type of wave that you're riding right <laughs> so were you and, usually kind of mostly hiring freelancers as well on projects and when there's feast and yeah. you have more people when there's famine you're kind of well if we we always tried to to keep um really good artists because really good artists are hard to are right. hard to come by and so um you try and keep them as long as possible and when you're in a company that small they're also friends and and um so there's there's a a personal connection as well as just the the business connection so you want to keep them around you want to keep their livelihood up and right so you kind of invest into them um, during during those times when you try and plan for for those lulls in in work um, but there's all always uh, uh, those times when when things go away right <laughs> so, yeah, <I> know. 
Uh, and that we had three projects at one time and all of them went away at the same time. Um, citing, it was right around, um, uh, nine 11. So everyone got, got super skittish and, and then they all went away and, um, the, uh, and so I, I, I said, well, you know what, I'm just going to apply to, to Weta and see if I can get in there. And, um, so I got hired on two towers as a lighting supervisor or not lighting supervisor as a lighting TD. Interesting. So so you had to, you had to effectively close your, your company or. Yeah. Um, it wasn't absolutely, it wasn't closed, closed, but it wasn't, um, active so we um we'd always do like little side things here and there but um but it was mainly me right because at at, that point i mean studios i'm assuming at that point you you had no choice but to kind of you know let go of some of the people that were working there before right yeah right 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 um, and, and they were, and they were fine. They, they super talented people. So they went on to, um, to other facilities and, and, and other ventures. And, and, um, I think yeah. everyone's doing pretty well, pretty well for themselves. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's one thing I'm sure that you kind of like in retrospect, you look at it and you're like, Oh, it wasn't that bad. But when it happens, I'm sure it's not easy. And it's like, you know, it's kind of, a, yeah. it sits on you probably for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And then you moved to, did you move to uh, Australia or to New Zealand for, uh, for Weta? Yeah. For, so we're there for nine months ish. Uh, and then we moved back to, to the States. And then now I had Lord of the Rings on, on my reel and then I could get some representation. And then, so my, um, uh, manager, no, Agent. Agent. I <laughs> guess. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So my my agent would then find other things for me as a as a freelancer, and they were really really good at. Uh, okay, Todd's booked for these three months. A month before I was wrapping up that, they would automatically just start looking for new stuff. Nice. And and saying, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And. Um, uh, so did that for, for a long time for years. And then, um, I moved back to Seattle to be with my now wife and, uh, I'm curious, uh, sorry to, to stop you for a second, but I'm curious, like you mentioned, yeah. you moved to New Zealand, you were a lighting, uh, TD on, uh, yeah. on Lord of the Rings. And, um, I guess the I guess I'm curious because you mentioned uh, once you've opened your own company, um, it kind of uh, puts you at a place where you can then uh, start getting work as a supervisor on on things or, you know, director. Right. Um, And TD is, you know, technical director. um, But I'm wondering if that was kind of what you meant by that or or, uh, the experience of having run your own studio before was something you you were maybe hoping that would lend you more supervisorial uh works in in these kinds of jobs uh, i no i think i think i just had to take a a step 
back from what I was doing and focus on just the task at hand rather than than supervising the stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think that my supervisor experience lent to being a better artist because I knew what the expectations were. And then also um, growing back from a, a lighting TD and up through a lighting uh, supervisor and then a, a CG supervisor and then ultimately a, a visual effects supervisor again. Right. Um, I, I just kind of had to re rebrand myself or re- reestablish myself uh working with with other companies and and establishing relationships uh right. to to make that happen because um, i uh, ultimately when i moved to to back to seattle i thought that i was closing a chapter in in my life it's like well there's not really any kind of visual effects in Huh. So what were you thinking? <laughs> Seattle. Yeah. What, what was your plan then? Were you then like, um, maybe it's time to, you know, to become a baker or like, <laughs> not anything like that. Uh, but, so I'm, I also write screenplays and I also write for animation magazine and, um, and writing for animation allows me access to, um, to developers and software and so forth. So my, my thought was, okay, okay, I'll focus on writing screenplays and then I'll focus on also learning techniques that I haven't been able to keep up with because I've been supervising artists who are better than me at those tasks. Okay. Uh, and so, so kind of like bringing, can, bringing your skills up to, up to the level that you've kind of seen other people at or. Well, no, that, that are at least adequate. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't aspire to, right. to match skills with, um, uh, with Houdini artists right. that, that work in Houdini 12 hours a day. <laughs> and so, but I can talk to them. I can have a conversation with them and I know what the capabilities of the software are. Right. And so I can say, well, ha- have we tried this? Um, what happens if we do this? And then they go in and muck around with it and do their magic. But I at least kind of know what the magic is or, or the, the result is, even if I don't know how to do it myself or right. not, not as effectively as they do. It reminds me that I kind of briefly, uh, briefly when I looked you up, I, I noticed that you wrote, uh, you were, in tr- you were part of a thread in the, uh, Typhlo forum, uh, a few months ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. And you even did like a, a car crash, uh, kind of, uh, test with, on Typhlo. So I, that was a kind of like, uh, oh. the indication that, okay, you're, you know, you're definitely keeping yourself, uh, you know, uh, informed up, and up to and speed. Up to speed and, <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah. very important for, you know, for a supervisor, right. To, to, like you say, to kind of know just enough to be dangerous, let's say, or like to be able to, to, uh, consult your, uh, artists and, uh, people, if, you know, kind of ask them, did you use the, the latest, uh, plugin or did you try this? Did you try that? Just, yeah. You know, I think it's even if you don't do it on a daily basis, it, it, that uh, you do provide a perspective that uh, sometimes can be elusive to someone who's so close to the box all the time. Um, right. Um, and yeah. but we're talking about when you moved back to Seattle. That was uh, 
it was it kind of shortly after Lord of the Rings, or we're talking about like a long time ago, or was it fairly recent? No, it, so uh, Two Towers would have been two thousand two ish. Okay, and I moved back in two thousand nine. I see. So I was I was bouncing around, right, from place to place, uh, and uh, up until two thousand nine, and then. Uh, when I did move back up, uh, like I said, I, I, I was just resigned to the idea that 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 I would be doing other things, and um, the and I just kept on getting calls for for doing stuff, and it was the conversation was usually, well, I'm in Seattle now, right, and they would say, okay, well, we'll just send you the files, and you can just <laughs> do the shot and send it back. And, um, but that was, that, that opportunity came because, because of, of years of building uh, a reputation or, or a sense of trust, uh, among people who knew that I would be able to, to deliver what they were asking without, um, hovering over me yeah. and, and watchdogging me. And so it took a long time to, to to build that that industry cred in order for me to to actually accomplish that, gotcha. and then I got asked to do something a show up in Vancouver, which isn't too far from Seattle. So I went up there to to do that, and that was for Prime Focus. So I started networking in there, and then some people left prime focus and went to other places. And one of the supervisors or the VFX supervisor that I was the CG supervisor for on that project, he went to method. And then a few years later, I got a call from method saying, this guy is requesting you. And um, then you, you want to come up here and do that. And you still, you are working at method right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the uh, the for all mankind show is a method show. It was an atomic fiction show, but then atomic fiction was bought by Method, so now it's a method show, and um, that's all happening in in Montreal, or actually split between Montreal and Vancouver. But I am in Montreal at the at the moment. Right. So you are. So and and is your family there as well? Did you guys like move to Montreal, or is it uh, per project? You nope, nope. It's for this project. So at the end of the at the end of the month here, when we wrap it up, then I'll go back to Seattle and take a break. That's kind of the pattern. So I'll, I'll take a big show and then I'll take a break for five or six months, and then I'll take on a big show, and then I'll take a break. And either work on my own stuff or work on small stuff that's in that's in Seattle, um, or I'll take on things that just sound fun. Like last summer, I did a thing for a twelve-minute Adult Swim project, okay. and it was just so it, it was not a ton of money, but it was just so wacky and bananas that it was kind of like okay, yeah, that's, this sounds super fun. Let's do this. And um, and were, did you were you at a position where you had to say no to big to other projects that would have paid better around the same time? Like, are, are you usually when you take that break that you mentioned? Do you uh, feel like you're you have to pass um, to to pass on other things that would have been? 
No, I don't have to. It's not. It's not really like a a, a strong imposition of okay, I'm on break now, so I'm not taking anything. It's more like I'm on break now, and and we'll see what shows up. Right. So that um, I'm I've gotten to a point where where I'm really probably irritatingly picky about about what shows <laughs> that I'll that I'll choose to work on right. mainly because it, it's like okay who who's who are the creatives that are driving this this show is it going to be an interesting show creatively is it going to am I going to learn anything from the show am I going to learn anything from these people um and uh and then we kind of go from there. How long is the project? Where is the project? Um, Vancouver is easier to choose because I'm closer to home. Right. I can just drive home um, as opposed to going to uh, Montreal or London or, or other places do you, around the world. Do you ever go um, to LA too? Or is it kind yeah. of, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I go to LA frequently for, for meetings and and so forth, um, but there's not a whole lot of feature work in in LA unless you're on the client side. Yeah, and so um, you know that might be something that that I'm aiming to to do more so than than not as a transition. I mean, ultimately, I would like to be directing stuff. Yeah, and the way that would, you get yeah. to direct stuff is you direct stuff. <laughs> exactly, and um, <laughs> so. Uh, I have, I'm working on my own short and then I, and some other projects for that. But ideally, I think my path is, is supervising on the client side now and building up those relationships on the production side. Yeah. And then directing VFX unit stuff and then maybe second unit stuff. And then maybe people would have confidence in me to say, yeah, yeah, it seems like you can direct stuff. Okay, so wow, I have a lot of questions. Like this, this is very. <laughs> um, so, um, how would you go? Like, what what is you think the kind of best way to go from being a VFX supervisor working um, at the vendor, if it's Method or whichever studio do, doing the VFX, to um, to being an onset uh, VFX supervisor and then um, a unit you know, VFX unit supervisor, uh, director, which uh, right. for people who don't know, a unit director is someone who's actually directing on set that has a, a crew with him, a, a cinematographer, and he's in charge of, of filming sequences for the film. And usually I'm, I'm assuming if you're a VFX uh, unit director, then you shoot things that have a lot of VFX in them. Um, yeah. Uh, so do you, uh, have you done it before? And what, what do you feel like would be the kind of, the trajectory or, or the way uh, to, to do that. I've uh, I've I've done it before, and I've also directed motion capture sequences and and so forth. Like I was a, um, I directed the stuff that we needed for Black Panther um, through methods. So we were talking to to Marvel and said, "Well, we need these things," and so they booked out the the uh the studio at digital domain and um i flew down there and working with the with the second unit uh second unit vfx soup a guy named jesse james chisholm mm -hmm. um he uh he was around but but he was quite busy 
monitoring all the all of the other things that were going on on the show. So they yeah. just kind of let me let me direct what I needed to direct. Um, it's not exactly the same as as directing it with you know where there's a camera and crew and lighting and all that kind of stuff. Because but, it's motion capture, uh, so it's it's you're directing mostly like the choreography and the I guess it's fight sequences. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, fight sequences or, or background stuff. Um, but it's still working with actors and, right. and, uh, that really is the job of the director is to work with the, yeah work with the actors. That's like the key thing. Exactly. Um, and so, uh, the trajectory, the trajectory uh, of going from one place to, to the other. So I found that it, in order to, to get to the place where you want to be, you actually have to tell people that that's where you want to be. Hmm. And so um, there's a lot of uh, people who, who approach me um, on different shows saying, well, I want to be a, a lead of a department. How do I get there? I want to be a CG supervisor. How do I do that? I want to be a VFX supervisor. How do I do that? And my first question is, well, who knows that you want to do this? Right. Um, because, you know, sometimes you, you're, you're going to get picked out. Like if you're a good lighter, for example, they may go, Oh, well, you're a fantastic lighter. You should be a lighting lead. And that, and that's not the the thing that you want to look for. Exactly. You, you want to look for the person who wants to be a leader of, of people. And that is a different skill set than being a lighter. Yep. And so, um, it's those people who actually stand up and, and say, this is what I want to do. Yeah, give me a chance to do it, and they and people will give you a chance to to do it if they know that that's what 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 it is <laughs> that, that you want. I think people and sometimes so, are shy. They feel like I feel. I mean, I know it from my own experience that sometimes saying what I want is seems like a you know like like a threatening thing almost you know because um, depends on how you were brought up. But sometimes people are kind of assuming that if you say what you want and, uh, you have a greater chance of not getting it or something for some reason. It, um, it's possible. It's also, it's also risky. Like, yeah. like, would it, what if they say no? And the answer is, yeah. What if they, what if they say no, then you're, you're still at the same place you were before. Exactly. <laughs> They're not going to demote you for, for asking you know, to be promoted to a, yeah. a higher level of responsibility. Um, and so as, uh, as I'm going from VFX supervisor to, to potentially client side VFX supervisor, it, it's, you just have to talk to the people who are on the, on the client side and say, and say things like, you know, ultimately I want to be uh, on this side of things because I, I feel that, I have a lot to learn and I, and I won't learn it by not being on set. Right. And um, so you begin that conversation with those people and it may take a long time. It's a, it's a, um, you're, you're playing the long game on this. So they may not give you the chance tomorrow, but they may give you the chance next year. Right. You just have to start that conversation so that, that seed is 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 planted, and then you just have to uh, nurture it. So you have to come back to that. You have to remember to come back to those people, right? And stay in communication with them, and also, and not in a way that you're asking them to um, to give you a job. It 
it can't be every time that you contact them, you're like, hey, do you have anything for me yet? Hey, do you have anything for me yet? It's right. more like you're reaching out and you're saying, um, hey, just wrapped up this project. I'm going on to, on to this project. And, uh, um, you know, I hope you can, hope you can catch it. I just was checking in to let you know what I'm, what I'm up to. And it's super, super important to, to dig that well before you're thirsty. Um, because once you start asking for stuff and, and it sounds like it's an emergency or it sounds imperative, you're less likely to, uh, to get what it is that that you want. I think it's a great, it's a great advice. I mean, I've, I've heard, I've had instances where people were offering me kind of, uh, you know, opportunities in the weirdest uh, connotations, not even me calling and being like, Hey, do you have something available? Sometimes I, um, I actually needed, for instance, I was on a, on one project and I needed an, uh, an, an asset or, or I needed a, a recommendation for another artist or something. And I would reach out to those people that, could theoretically offer me a job, but not in that uh, connotation at all. Uh, me asking for a specific, different kind of help, and even that sometimes mm-hmm. led to, uh, oh yeah, I have this guy that I recommend. By the way, what are you doing after this project? Because I'm, you know, just doing something. It's like it's, I think reaching out to people that you know can, you know, that that you're hoping to work with in any capacity on any, yeah. for any reason, uh, is something that's worth doing once a while, you know, like right. just to remind them that you're out there, that you're working, that you're not, you know, like sitting around waiting for anything to happen while, you know, um, yeah, but yeah. And it's not, it's not that hard. You just have to have to be cognizant and, and do it. And, and for me, it's setting up actual, um, reminders yeah uh to to contact certain certain people and there's there's different different frequency of of reminders for different kinds of um of people so yeah I'm sure. this person you caught you contact every three months this person is more like a once a year type of thing this person is um uh, like close friends and things like that. So you don't lose touch. It's more like every week. Yeah. But, uh, because we can get so, so involved in, in what we're doing, um, we kind of lose, lose connection with our connections. And then when you come out of your hole and you're like, Hey, I need a job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's not, that's not really a good approach exactly. <laughs> to, uh, to networking. <clears throat> no, and I think that, I, I mean, I know a lot of people have a, a tendency to just kind of assume that they're bugging other people when they reach out. And I'm like, no, you don't need to think about it that yeah. way. Just, you know, I get emails from random people all the time. And every, like about 50% of those, I actually, I get back to just because even though it's obviously clearly, you know, a, a sales agent or someone who's, you know, doing it on a, on a mass, I, I often will get back to mm-hmm. them just because I'm like, that's how I want my outreaches to be treated. And like, you know, why not? I mean, if I have, if obviously if I'm not super busy and I'm not going to do it in the middle of a, of a, of a very kind of tense uh, time, but like, I like to, you know, to communicate and to see what people have to offer and kind of like to treat people the mm-hmm. way I, w- I would want myself to be treated. But the, the assumption I always have when I reach out to people is that, I mean, 
if they're busy and they don't want to respond, they just won't respond. And, and you know, as long as I'm not doing it, you know, uh, relentlessly, I'm sure they'll forgive right. me kind of thing. And, and yeah. Um, I wanted yeah, to ask you because I, because I, we were, we're both on uh, the 3d pro mailing list. And I remember someone wrote, uh, uh, about you when you, um, uh, kind of in one of the messages that he, that you're his favorite VFX supervisor that he's ever worked with. Um, Oh, her. Yeah. Jean. Oh, her. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm curious, what do you think, uh, makes someone, uh, like someone else's favorite VFX supervisor? <laughs> what, what would you attribute that kind of, uh, anointment or, or, uh, uh, you know, what makes someone the, uh, the, the, get that title? Yeah. Someone else's um, favorite super, VFX supervisor. Right. Right. Uh, <clears throat> well, The, I, I think there's there's uh, a lot of factors. I, I think mainly uh, my supervision style is I, I, I try to be um, collaborative about stuff. So um, I let the artists do what they're good at, but um, I'm also asking them what they would like to do to things to to plus up the shot. If this were your shot, what would you do to make to make it better? And sometimes it's because I, I don't actually know the answer. Sometimes we're at, we're at a, a place on the shot where it's like, I don't know what more to do. To, what, what do you think we should do? Right. And sometimes I know the answer, and, but I want to hear if, if they have ideas that, that I haven't come up with. Yeah. And so um, that collaboration, I, I think it, it – gets the the artists more involved with the show it gets them to um to have a sense of ownership of the of the shots that they're working on rather than just being a cog in in a machine right. that's churning out stuff and um so that's one one component of it but also uh i, I know a lot of supervisors <clears throat> who who don't seem to have their uh their people skills honed in and so um their supervisor methods come across as as almost tyrannical oh wow and so um uh i i've seen a lot of different kinds of examples but making an example of an artist because they messed up uh that type of thing or, or being so nitpicky about something that's a, that it's almost punitive. Right. And doesn't really um, need to, and to, right. There, there's no benefit in yeah. it. Um, and so what that leaves is, is basically you, you have the supervisor who is, who is punching down on, on his team. So he's punching down on the CG supervisor, comp supervisor, et cetera, who's, who's right down below him. And then that's, gives permission and guidance to do the same for those yeah. supervisors to do the same thing down. And then yeah. it just cascades down and then you end up with a, with a, a show that has morale problems because nobody wants to work on the show, but it's their job. So that, so they're there to work on it. So rather than having a crew that is, is working working for everybody's success and working for, for your success yeah. as, as a supervisor, then you just have, have 
um, the people are less productive. Um, they're everyone's just kind of gloomy and morose and they're there for hours and hours and hours during the day in this state. And I, I just, um, I, I, I can't stand it when, when a show is run that way and I can't stand it if, if a show is spiraling out of control and it, and it gets to that state. So, so um, and I wonder if you're like, if, if the next step, for instance, uh, you know, hopefully, um, the next job you have or the one after that you're finally a client side VFX supervisor or even a director uh, the director of the film uh, I assume this uh, this your approach to supervision and to talking and, and to the way to kind of encourage and motivate your team will also manifest there in a way that will then trickle down and make hopefully the production the other uh, kind of uh, supervisors that are underneath you um get them to work in a similar sort of empowering fashion. Yeah, that, that would be the ideal anyway. Yeah. Um, you just, you want to have, when you're working with, with teams like, like that, you, you want to have everybody on the, on the same, on the same page. You want to have everyone feel like they're contributing to some kind of greater good so that everyone's in, invested into it. So, um, uh, yeah, no, I think that's, uh, and everybody will, will appreciate kind of being on a project like that when that's how they're being treated when they're, yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, as an example on, on, on black Panther, black Panther was an extremely tough show because of, um, the, the level that we were trying to deliver the amount of shots we were trying to deliver, um, and, uh, all, all sorts of, of factors that were causing people to stay very late and there's stress involved and, and so forth. But, um, after the show wrapped, I kept on hearing back from the producers and the coordinators and the artists and so forth that, that, they missed being on that show. Wow. Because it's, uh, not because it it was an easy show, but because the team was together in on it and the coordinators were supportive of the artists and the supervisors were supportive of the artists and, and, you know, there's a camaraderie between the supervisors and the artists yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I can appreciate, yeah. I can, I can see how this is, uh, this would be appreciated. Um, so I wanted to ask you because we're uh, about an hour ten minutes in. I usually does uh-huh. we we usually go for this long or even longer. Uh, I don't know. Not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's uh, uh <laughs> but it's because but it's definitely it's enjoyable. Thing. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> I wanted to uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit more about at least what can you tell us uh, about your um, your short that you mentioned you're working on and uh, um, other things that. You know, and, you're playing. And other things. Yeah, and other things. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the short started as as a kind of driving experiment for um, for learning particular things, uh, particular techniques, <clears throat> and it was developed originally at, at Method um, to keep people to keep artists busy on stuff and and where where they might be in between shows and so forth. So it was like, okay, well, we might, we want to have this and this and this and this on our reel. So what kind of story can we tell 
that would drive that technology. And we're not beholden to a client where we're just trying to, to do this so we can figure out some workflow things. And so I'm the one who came up with the, the idea and then pushed it um, and shot it and uh, so forth. And then like, post-production places are they get busy and then they don't have any resources to work on it so yeah i think ultimately i'm going to be the one to do all of the visual effects on it (laughs) so i've i'm the one who cut it i'm the one who um who directed it a friend of mine was dp on it Uh, i shot my own drone footage for it Nice. And, so you're also going to um, learn all, all the new techniques uh, while doing it. So so I learn all the new techniques. Some of them are incredibly intimidating. Really? Um, can you can but, you tell? Can uh, you say anything about them? Uh, what they are, or is that kind of part of the? Is that disclosing too much about what the short is about? No, no, it's not a a secret thing. Um, so it's just basically a short that that is about this um, this balloon animal artist in a park who is making balloons for kids and so forth. So balloon dogs and and et cetera. And then there's this little punk kid there who wants a balloon and she makes a balloon dachshund and he's completely unimpressed. (laughs) And so uh, she keeps on making bigger and more elaborate balloon animals to to impress him and to, to win him over like to the point where there's one where she's built a, a, uh, an entire Tyrannosaurus Rex, the size of a Tyrannosaurus Rex Wow! (laughs) out of, out of balloons. So what is the VFX there? (laughs) (laughs) Just a few things. Uh, but some of them are like, uh, where she's acting with balloons. So she's just kind of, uh, dynamically swinging balloons around. Oh, I see. Um, but it has to eventually form a, a, some kind of animal right. that none of us knew, knew how to build uh, <laughs> out of balloons. So, uh, she has this, you know, this proxy balloon thing. So the balloons have to be painted out and then she has to be rotoed and match moved so that we have the, the CG um, balloons, like put yeah. the C- CG balloons in there. And, um, so there's just a lot of paint and roto oh, yeah. and tra- and match move, and then uh, the last balloon ends up being a water balloon, mm. um, and she it's she kinds of it's like this magic balloon that that self inflates, and it's just filled with water, so it has that that kind of warbly type of yeah. feel as it's growing, and it becomes this this big uh, hippopotamus balloon. Nice and. The kid loves it, and he like hugs it, and so as he hugs it, the thing kind of kind of moves like a waterbed, basically. Yeah. And now that he loves it, uh, she pulls a pin from her hat and then and pops it, and it <laughs> pops in slow motion. So you see the the skin of the balloon ripping away, wow. and the water is still in the form of the of the hippo. And it holds there for a second, and then it just drenches the the kid. So <laughs> there's the inflating of the of the hippo, the dynamics of the of the hippo as a water balloon, then the ripping of the skin of the of the hippo, and then the water simulation 
Yeah, and to people to people down. who are not familiar with VFX, this, these are all very very challenging uh, <laughs> feats to achieve in VF in CG because uh, yes, yes, dynamic bodies and uh, liquid uh, simulation and all kinds of things that uh, usually take uh, quite a bit of uh, simulation and and this is even you know things that yep. that rarely kind of come out of the box. Uh, okay, like you, you kind of always have to <laughs> exactly. And, There's uh... yeah. There's no water balloon hippo button yeah, no. in, <laughs> in Houdini. There's a lot of buttons in Houdini, but not, not that a water one. hippo one. Uh, that nope. that sounds yeah, that's that does sound like a like a quite a bit of a challenge to take on uh, by yourself. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it it ultimately <laughs> will will get done at at some point. Um, but the best. The best uh, uh, compliment that I got was from some of the other people who were in the in the story sessions because um, I had storyboarded out the entire the entire short when I pitched it. Yeah, and um, and one of the people said this this feels like a uh, a Pixar short in live action. Oh, that is a compliment. So, are, yeah, totally. Those are amazing. And also, I think a lot of Pixar shorts are. Uh, similarly trying to expand the envelope in terms of what's possible with uh, CGI, at the, or at least the, the first 10. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the... Uh, well, it's still the, it's still the idea. Yeah. Because um, when you look at, at uh, things like Piper or, or these, uh, it's like they're really, really pushing yeah. some stuff, and, and they're always coming out with new technology and render man that they need to uh, test out uh, and to try yeah. out well that's yeah. that's super inspiring i mean i think that to me is is really kind of uh yeah inspiring and and uh, exciting to to think of the you know both the idea of like creating something new and being at, on the creative lead of that like you are in this case uh -huh. and and at the same time also exploring like uh or expanding the envelopes of some technology and like challenging yourself. My, I did a short recently called face swap, which was kind of similar in, in, mm -hmm. in, in that it was, it, it was born out of the, uh, desire to test, uh, this new technology called deep fakes or well, ma yep. machine learning, um, face swapping. Um, and, uh, yes, totally. And so it was kind of, it was, uh, it was fun on multiple levels. It was fun because I got to, you know, to direct and to, and to hang mm -hmm. out with actors and, and get a team going and, and go out and shoot it. And it was also fun because I got to play with, with the new technology that I never had a chance to, to learn before. And it was all this, like, you know, these little challenges that had to be, uh, uh, figured out. And, um, and yeah, like that's the, the best of both worlds as far as I'm concerned. So I think like, you know, that's always, uh, always a good reason to go out and do something like that. Um, yeah, for sure. And, um, you mentioned you've also written, uh, you're a screenwriter. So did you, uh, yeah. have you written anything recently that, like... uh, I, I've written a number of, of screenplays. One was for, Roger Corman, as we were doing visual effects for for his company in the early early two thousands, yeah, and uh, and so 
um, I came up with a concept for it, and then they said, oh, well, we'll just get these guys to write it. And then I didn't like what they were doing, so I said, okay, can, can I take a crack at this? And um, I said, oh, sure. But we need it. This was Friday, and they needed it by Monday. Wow. And uh, so I called up a friend of mine who's also a CG visual effects supervisor, digital artist type guy who's also my age. So we, and we have the same sensibilities as far as uh, what makes a good movie. Yeah. And we're also big horror movie fans. And so um, I said, do you, do you want to write a screenplay for Roger Corman? And he's like, yep, let's do it. In 48 and hours. So, or so. <laughs> in, in 48 hours. So we wrote that. We turned it in, and they said, this is way better than the other guys, but it's too expensive, oh. and so we have to go with the other guys. And so we said, okay, well, you know, this isn't half bad, so we're going to just take this back and massage it a bit into something something uh, a little bit better. Yeah. And so we did that, and then it was optioned, and then it kind of went away. And so it hasn't been made yet. I went back and reread it, and it was like, ah, oh, this feels like a twenty-eight-year-old wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, hey, twenty-eight and is not also, too bad. I mean, <laughs> it's not too bad. But also now the technology is all wrong. The vernacular is all wrong. The uh, unless we make it a period piece, right? So. Um, uh, I'm updating that. And then I wrote something else that was based on a story from, um, a friend of mine, um, about a, uh, an underground baseball game in Brooklyn, hmm. um, that was run by the mafia. Wow. <clears throat> and then, uh, and then I wrote something on commission for a, a superhero screenplay of a superhero that doesn't have any kind of branding or, or anything like that. So it's not really a known thing. Right. Um, and then I have multiple other screenplays that are a few horror screenplays. And, and, um, uh, and now I just need to not work so that I can, <laughs> so that I can write them. So when is the show? Um, I forgot the, the Apple, um, show the um for all mankind yeah for all the, yeah. i i do not know hmm. um I, I don't know when when the service is gonna is gonna go live and um i know that we're wrapping up at the end of the summer here but i don't know when it's supposed to be released i see well that's all exciting can't wait to see it, it sounds like a great uh great show yeah, go check go check out the, uh, the trailer. The trailer, yeah, right after this. Um, and um, I guess that's. Uh, do you think that at the end of the show, uh, which is I guess the end of the summer, you'll you'll take another break as you do after uh, jobs like that, or do you have anything lined up right after? What's your? Um, I have. <clears throat> I have another thing in Seattle that's another Adult Swim thing that uh, I just got the script for to look at. And um, then I occasionally do stuff for the Getty Museum in in L.A. Oh. And they have something that, uh, um, that they need for the next, or possibly need for the next year. They're still debating as whether or not they need 
need uh, CG. Are these all uh, also through method, or are these things you take on as a freelancer? Nope. Freelancer? Those are just mine. Okay. Uh, yep. Through through my own company. That's cool. I mean, it's uh, it sounds like you kind of are enjoying of like a little bit of everything. Like you get to work on projects, yeah. you can choose the projects that excite you, and you go work on them. And if you uh, you can work at a studio and supervise other, you know, a lot of art, art, artists or work. Uh, does your company have full-time employees or is it usually things you nope. you kind of form small teams uh, for those projects? And Yeah, it's, it's mainly just me. Um, and then if I need some support, uh, I have a group of, of people in Seattle that I can turn to for, for particular specialties. Gotcha. Um, and... Uh, but usually it's just it's just me pushing pushing through the shots. So out of curiosity, I mean, do you usually work with similar softwares to the ones you uh, supervise, or is it kind of your preferences are totally different? How's that usually work? My uh, my preference is is three D Studio Max because I grew up with it, and so I know it best, and so I usually turn to it. But um, <clears throat> I will push myself to do stuff in Houdini or other things um, if I have time <laughs> to to if I basically have time to mess up. And that's interesting um, because I'm sure, uh, from what I know, not a lot of studios or at least feature film studios work with Three Studio Max as a as a regular pipeline tool. Not a lot. Yeah. Not a lot of them. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic's environment uh, department does. Yeah. Um, Scanline does. Uh, Pixamondo, as far as I know, does. Um, but Method doesn't, for But instance. it is it. Method does not. They, they are Houdini, Maya, Katana, Nuke, um, and... Uh, and that does not... Uh, but and, That doesn't, like doesn't hold them back from having you supervise um you know i mean it, of course no. you know those other softwares as well it's just a matter of preference I'm sure. right right um yeah. and for compositing do you use nuke as well or do you use after effects what's your um i use nuke and i use after effects if i need to um i, I i'm faster in in nuke hmm. uh maybe because that's the way my brain works but uh um that's my compositing tool of choice. Uh, although I kind of grew up on, on fusion. So, um, you know, fusion is yeah, it's also no essentially free. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you could, you could use that and it is node based like, like, like Nuke, Nuke is. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's very, uh, hopeful at least cause I'm my, uh, my 3d software of choice is also three studio. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, I have supervised projects that uh, were Maya based, and I've done some Maya myself you right. know, for for the for some of those projects because I kind of use them as an excuse to to get you know to get better at it. But there's still no, it's still you know there's no uh, alternative for me as far as like you know being able to start a project from scratch and and go through like all those stages pretty quickly with uh, you know with the software that I know right. kind of in and out. And uh, do you also yeah. uh, do you also ever code or script? Do you get a chance to do any of that on the? Not, n- not really, because um, no. I'm just busy supervising. Right. And on the stuff that I do on my own, it, there's just not enough dev time to 
to say, oh, well, you know what? I could just make this into a tool. Right. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> and, definitely rare, rare on you. And write the code. Yeah. Um, uh, for instance, I, I did a I did a project for a thing called um, Hollow Dome, which was a a thing that Paul Allen started. No it's way. A which three sixty degree? Which one? Thing. Which one was that? I worked on a, on one of those too. <laughs> it was it was a thing for a cloud um, a Claude Monet installation, and so we basically created a world uh, that was impressionistic, and we took the locations that he painted yeah. and made them into like a little micro Monet world that the camera could travel through. Okay. That's interesting. Was that recent? Uh, how, how long ago was that? Uh, it, show, it it was presented at, at Ted, um, a TEDx thingy uh, in April. Okay. So kind of recent. Yeah, pretty recent. I, I worked on their, uh, you know, they made five Holodome experiences back uh, mm-hmm. last year, uh, around May, a year ago, um, at at the Mopop. So, you know, at, at their yeah. Uh, I, I was uh, supervising the um, a Death Planet Rescue one, which is I don't know if you've got got a okay, chance. Yep. It's fully CG three sixty. I got I got to see all of them when when we were <laughs> developing this thing. Cool. It's like oh, here's all the things that we made. So uh, what what about that? Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I totally cut you oh, off. Oh, oh. But <laughs> <laughs> the um, the neural style transfer stuff uh, to try right. and make the the renders look like impressionistic paintings. Um, we ultimately we, we had to go and and use a a plugin in After Effects that was written with the learning algorithms that that people fed it. Um, so, so then it made it into a component of the plugin that you could say, "Oh, okay. Well, now we have the oh wow the Van Gogh version, then we have the and this impressionist version, right. and then we have this version." So they're they're basically creating new uh, learned styles. Uh, so they feed the the machine learning algorithm the stuff to learn, and then it spits out the the thing that you can plug in. Yeah. And that was the most that was the most expedient way to do it. But I did start diving into into that rabbit hole of, oh Jesus, like, <laughs> gonna have to to actually yeah find the sources to to feed it, and you need a gajillion sources to go from. And right, start a. I, I mean, I had to and dive. Then how into do we that. implement that? I did. I had to go into GitHub and download, you know, the thing and try to build the programming environment and run, you know, I don't know what. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it was a uh, no, uh, no After Effects uh, to help me with that. In, involved. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm. I may end up tapping you on the shoulder for that because I am helping out a friend on his feature. Oh. Which has a lot of visual effects shots in it, so it's probably not going to be done for another year. Right. But there is, uh, there, there are some shots in there that um, that would benefit from from a deep fake solution. Like face replacement shots or like changing. Yeah, yeah, like a a shot of of a character going from from young to old, oh. and the plates the plates weren't shot appropriately. Gotcha. So 
Um, so if I could get it to learn and then we can <laughs> apply the young face to the old person's face and then just do a transition. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good, uh, things like that use case for it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely the, you know, the, the deep fake guy for your, for your, if you, if you need any help, I have it all set up <laughs> for, <laughs> for my deep fake needs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that's awesome. And uh, the dome thing, uh, sorry, the Holodome project was also 360 at what, 12K was it or 9K? Well, what did they, what, I remember our, mm, we were, I think we're at, I think we're at 8K. 8K? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I know they can project they're up to 12K. And we were like, I think we're going to do less than that if we, if we're allowed <laughs> to, because, uh, yeah, we finished in at 9K. But uh, the CG, a lot of CG was was rendered at six K, just because it wouldn't we wouldn't sure. have been able to do it otherwise. Um, right, right. And sometimes it just gets too too sharp, and you end up softening it. Yeah, anyway. exactly. But it's a beautiful. I mean, I went to well, it's it's right right in your backyard, right, Seattle, essentially. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah it's right makes there. a lot of sense. Um, I went up there for the you know for the launch of the the holodome um, installation when when it came out and i remember just you know being very uh you know very impressed with with the experience it, it was actually way better than i thought it was going to be because we did all the tests all the uh all the iterations and reviews and stuff in a vr kind of uh recreation of the holodome i don't know if that's how you guys worked on it as well um we basically just kind of launched a, a virtual holodome in our you know in the studio mm -hmm. and walked around and kind of got a sense of how it might feel to be standing there. And like, we put a CG human to kind of represent another person. Cause this is a 360 degree experience where I think five or six people walk in at the same time and just kind of stand at the center of this, uh, dome or ball or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I just remember it being like kind of feeling strange and a bit distracting to see that, the CG person kind of standing next to me, always kind of hiding uh, parts of the screen <laughs> and stuff. But then when I, when I was there in the actual dome and, you know, was there with five other people, it didn't bother me at all. It, it felt yeah. way less, um, you know, way more natural than, than it was in the, in the VR experience, which is, yeah. If anybody's in Seattle, yeah, it, should it is a, it an interesting experience. Yeah. For sure. I, I'm wondering how you guys, like uh, if you, I don't know if you're even allowed to, um, but uh, if you were to take something like this and try to put it in your reel, like how do you go about doing that? A 360 degree that's kind of only being, you know, experiencing this one. Place. Yeah. Um, well, if you could put it on on your reel, I, I guess you can do um, you can do YouTube 360s, right? right. So you could uh, you could post it in that format, and as long as you know your renders are are a lot long then it should work <laughs> I, I would i don't know um i hadn't considered it because uh putting it online it, we we definitely have to get get permission yeah. and so forth because it, it's a venue right exactly. it's an experience yeah we were very limited and so, i think we're yeah i think it's i mean we didn't get any 
they told us we could we could do it but we'd have to run run any any kind of uh, material like that through them before we put it out so we just didn't do it yeah <laughs> like yeah, uh, yeah. you know but uh, it makes uh, it makes yeah. sense no totally because um awesome but um i definitely have a ton more questions but i think uh you know i'm, I'm gonna respect your time and uh it's uh it was it yeah, was a lot of part two yeah later no it was a lot of fun talking <laughs> to you uh and it's very inspiring i think you know like my takeaway from it is is that uh it just seems like there's a lot of ways you can make it work in terms of like you know being uh being able to be a part of productions and be useful and you know if you if they need you on site to be on site without having to kind of uh mm -hmm. become full-time and you know it seems like you're 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 allowing yourself to be to remain flexible and to remain independent and to choose your projects and to kind of you know i think uh i myself am kind of i've always been intimidated by working for big companies because i always kind of i'm afraid i'm going to be like swallowed in and uh you know so it's i've kind of had to you know constantly been yeah. on the fence about taking too big pro you know projects that were too big um sure but it's very uh you know it, it's 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 a very optimistic story that i think you're you're here to tell about you know being able oh, to good. kind of Money. uh enjoy all the you know all of those worlds and and have time for yourself and your own projects and yeah i, I wish you the yeah. best and it sounds like you have a lot of uh a lot of exciting uh goals and uh and um kind of achievements in the future as well that that you're you know that i hope you get uh you get to pretty soon oh thank you very much i i yeah i hope to get there soon too we'll see how it goes great thank you so much todd it was great all right no problem i'll talk to you soon That was it, episode 20 with Todd Sheridan Perry. I hope to see you next time. We'll have Guy Hasson, a prolific sci-fi writer who's also a filmmaker and also a world expert in a very specific, unique thing. Stay tuned. <laughs>